Buenos dias. Good morning again. Let me turn this on. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to be here with you. It's a blessing to see uh, so many faces that I just got to meet two weeks ago. Uh, and it's a blessing to be here on Reformation Day. We have to remember uh, these events happened five centuries ago. Changed the world for both Christendom and the wider church. Literacy, printing, a bunch of things. But it's not finished. It's not finished. And so that's what we're going to look at today. This. The title of the message this morning, brothers and sisters, our urgent need to finish the Reformation. If we take all the, all the ingredients for, for dinner, and we put them on the counter, and we heat up the stove, and, and my wife, my mother-in-law, they, they get excited, they start setting the table, but we never put the food in the, in the oven. Doesn't matter how good the ingredients, the original ingredients are. Doesn't matter uh, how hungry we are. We're not gonna eat. And what the, what the reformers did, uh, in England, what the continental reformers did, what they began, we have to finish. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at this morning. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century uh, was much more, brothers and sisters, uh, much more than a, a German monk angrily putting his parchment on the, the cathedral's door with his complaints. It's much more than that. But don't worry, I'm not going to give a history lesson this morning. Uh, there's still some, some, some different perspectives I'd like to share. Uh, we have to know, brothers and sisters, that, that these valiant and impassioned and courageous men sacrificed, sacrificed greatly for us. They, they sacrificed to, to heal a broken church. They never set out to start a new denomination. They never started set out to, to fracture the body of Christ. We have to remember, like, even when we read the creeds, the, the holy, apostolic, and Catholic, small c, uh, universal, worldwide, church. They fought to heal the church. And for nearly all of them, it cost them their lives. And that may sound strange to us today, uh, to see, wow, look, these, these men were, were blessed to be martyred. This is really important to set the, to set the, right, to set the right context this morning as we enter in, into this. These men were, were martyred. For what reason? So that each of us could have the word of God in our native tongue, in our original language of birth, that we could have it in our hands, in our home, in our cars, uh, tucked away in the back of, of someone's skinny jeans. <laughs> we have the word of God, and they willingly gave up their lives for the greater good. But let's pause for a second. When I, what did I just say? They were blessed to be martyred. They were blessed to be martyred, to give up their lives for the church, for God, 
And the, the idea, the idea for us today of dying for our beliefs seems so terribly foreign. It seems so, so, so extreme and so pointless. And this is where we should feel convicted because we falsely believe, we falsely believe that we are so important, that our lives are so much more valuable, that there's no way we would give up our life. There's no way we would do that ultimate sacrifice for a belief, for a concept, for a theological point of view. We would not do that today. But why is this? Too many of us today, too many of us today worship in beautiful, sterilized churches. This is a beautiful church. It's an honor to be here. Uh, you can see the, the, the love, the care, the devotion that was put into the creation, to the building of this church. And it's a blessing. However, there's a danger in this. To be so far removed from the pain of life, the stench of death, the ugliness of the world has side effects. And we can see this as, as, as a marker where you went wrong. Because the, the, the goal of today is for us to reorientate our theological compass. All of us have a theological compass, and all of us are little mini theologians, whether you want to accept it or not. All of us, now that we have the Word of God, comes into us, comes into our heart. Our mind takes it apart, analyzes it. We chew on it. We become little theologians. So it's very important, where's our compass? Where's, what is true north on our theological compasses? And this is the part of the Reformation that we need to pick up and continue. The, the early reformers, the, the work they did, the incredible work they did, was exterior. It was within the church, within the, the larger body of Christ. But now it's up to us, internally, individually, have that reformation within us. When needed to, when, whenever I need to, to refocus, whenever I need to reorientate my own theological compass, the theological compass of, of, of others, I've yet to find a, a clearer, more, a clearer, stronger way to do this than with the story we're going to hear today. Uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was blessed to, to speak with you about dignity. I hope everybody remembers a little of that. Uh, dignity as defined by the word of God. Not by the dictionary, not by society. Dignity defined by the word of God. And today we're going to see the, we have a, this juxtaposition. When dignity is taken away, when the idea of us being the Imago Dei, God's image bearers. When that is taken away from someone, there is no blessing. 
We are forced to eat this rancid and, and putrid fruit. Dignity, remember, dignity comes first, then love. So we're going to see this morning about two men, two men living in the, and two men who are neighbors, mere meters across from each other, but they're living in two completely, vastly different worlds. So the text we'll be studying today, the, the text we're going to be unpacking, everyone get their Bibles, please, or on their smartphones, uh, is the story of rich man. The rich man and Lazarus, as given to us by Dr. Luke, the 16th chapter of his epic gospel, verses 19 through 31. So it's Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And there's something I want you to pay, pay close attention to, everyone, on verse 26. We're going to see which direction... Father Abraham is, is, is discussing, speaking of traveling. I promise you, it's not what we think. This is another part with, with, with that I love theology so much because there's a discipline that's needed, especially for these stories that we, that we are so familiar with because we read them, but we hear what we think the stories say. We read them with our eyes, but our mind, our hearts, or somewhere else, because we know the story. We don't pay close attention. But remember, in the, in the providence of the Lord, which is perfect, he chose as the principal way to communicate with us. This is, this is especially hard here in Guatemala, a very uh, uh, Pentecostal, very uh, challenging mission field. But the, the, the Lord chose to communicate with us through his word. Words have value. Words have meaning. So we need to have the discipline to learn and see what is it actually saying. Uh, as we dig into this incredible, mysterious, and dramatic scene, uh, we're going to touch on some interesting issues. We have soteriology, which is study salvation, eschatology, study of end times, uh, even anthropology, study of man. So let's dive in. Once again, for those at home, I'm in Luke. We are in Luke 16, 19 through 31. And the version I'm going to read is from the ESV. There was a rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted subsequently every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores whose desire to be fed with what, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his source. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip his finger, the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. The word of God for his people. Now, Let's get into this. This is, this is incredible. Unfortunately, uh, for time's sake, we can't get into all of the, the, the details. So we're going to touch on a couple of mountain point aspects. First, what do we see? We see that the, the, the Lord, we see his, his unfathomable love for us. Because he's given us this account to both warn us and guide us back onto the narrow path which leads to our having a seat at Father Abraham's banquet table with Lazarus and the other saints. And tomorrow, be November 1st, All Saints Day, All Souls Day. Uh, this is another reason we have to study the Word of God because today's Halloween. We can't let the outside world teach our kids and teach us about death and the afterlife and, and ghosts and all of these things that, are, that we all face. We have to come back to the word of God and see what does it say. First, what do we notice? We notice that rich men's anonymous. We have Lazarus' name. The one who God helps is the, is the meaning of Lazarus. We have Lazarus' name. The rich men's anonymous. I believe that's because any one of us can fit into that, into that role. But also, we can see how rich was he? Uh, in the original Greek, when it talks about fine linen, the word it uses is buson. You don't need to make a, a note or anything. But that's basically a word used for underwear. So this man was so wealthy, he was dressed in purple every day. Purple, the most expensive pigment. That's why purple is the, is the color of kings. But he was dressed in purple, not just on the outside, all the way down. So in our day and age, I would say he's Elon Musk, rich. Or Bill Gates, rich. Insanely rich. All the way down to his undergarment. Second, what do we see? Conversely, Lazarus is materially impoverished. But the unique wealth that Lazarus has eclipses the rich man's in an infinite amount. But how? I believe he's most likely the, the most loved, most beloved person in all the, the village 
where he lives. And the scripture's pretty clear with this. How? I touched on it a little bit two weeks ago, but one of the main concerns for Jews uh, in this period was to remain ceremonial, ceremonially, remain ritually pure. We have Leviticus 13 and elsewhere, which clearly warns against touching anyone with an open sore. Yet, the young men lay Lazarus each morning at the rich man's gate. This is very significant, brothers and sisters, because we see that means you have to pick him up. Every morning, these men pick up Lazarus, who's covered in sores, and they sacrifice their purity. Then they go back and do it in the afternoon. What love. Uh, but also we see in verse 21, we also see an incredible little account. Uh, whenever we come across something in scripture, uh, take out your highlighter, take out your, your pen. Whenever you see something that's unusual, something that just sounds strange or, or illogical, because those odd pieces of scripture that seem so out of place are very important. So let's tie this together. Uh, we're going to look at, for verse 21, we're going to look at uh, two different translations. It makes it a little clearer. First, the message. And he lived. This is verse 21. All he lived for was to get a meal of scraps off the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. Here I go from Mounsus, uh, uh, interlinear, straight from the Greek. But instead, the dogs used to come and lick his sores. So we have this picture, we have this image in our mind, brothers and sisters, of Lazarus there, just begging for some crumbs to fall from the rich man's table, for one of his party goers, one of his fiestas, to drop something. But as consolation, not as a way to tease, not as a way to insult, as we just read over these verses quickly, thinking we know what they say, the dogs are sent to him. This is incredible. Listen to this. 1994, uh, a Harvard professor, uh, Professor Stagger, discovered more than 1,300 buried dogs behind an ancient temple south of Israel, Ashkelon, belonging to the Phoenicians. Well, the Phoenicians, from the 5th to the 3rd centuries before the birth of Christ, they controlled the entire area. Basically, we can see the ancient people knew, brothers and sisters, that the saliva of dogs has certain enzymes. And these enzymes have certain healing, certain curative aspects to them. We're talking about a time when there's no pharmacies, no real pharmaceutical uh, uh, tools to go to. People would come, if you had a, uh, someone in your family who was ill, you would come to one of these pagan temples and you'd give money to a pagan priest and the pagan priest would come and bring these dogs who would lick your wounds. That was like receiving your, your antibacterial cream, your, your treatment. 
We're going to come back now to Deuteronomy 23.18. What does Deuteronomy 23.18 say? In part, it's forbidding worshipers from bringing the wages of dogs to the temple. So if you're just reading that at home in your devotional one morning, say, wages of dogs to the temple. I don't think they had the greyhound races back then. What could that mean? We can see it and tie it together. If you're bringing wages that you made off of dogs, what does that mean? That means that you are a pagan priest. And people are bringing their ill to you. And you're making money off of that. How are you going to bring to the temple of God money gained that way? So we see that this, this wealth that Lazarus had, the rich man could never buy because he was so beloved. We don't know what happened. We don't know what happened to the rich man, I mean, to Lazarus. We don't know why he's ill. Uh, we don't know what happened. It, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we see the character of a Christian heart in Lazarus juxtaposed to a heart that's in the world. We see that he's so beloved in the village, the men sacrifice their purity. We see that even the animals love Lazarus. Here in Guatemala, what do we notice with the kids? They see a beautiful little lizard running across the, uh, running across the floor. They run over and they kill it. <laughs> they see some really cool insect on the wall. They run over and they kill it. We see our neighbors, how they keep their dogs chained up in an abusive manner. Not Lazarus. Even the animals, even the dogs love Lazarus. Now let's go on to verse 22. Lazarus died and was too poor for a funeral. But the angels of God transported him to heaven. Well, we'll get into that. It's not really in heaven. <laughs> Abraham welcomes him with a celebration. We have a great many questions, brothers and sisters, answered in this, this short story. Um, you make a note when you go home, look at uh, Luke 23, 43. Uh, people have questions, what happens when you die? Some people believe what they refer to as soul sleep, that we sleep. We sleep in the ground until the second advent. Uh, I've heard all kinds of strange stories. But I believe what, what I've read a lot of uh, early church fathers believed, that Abraham, Father Abraham's there at his banquet table, waiting for us, welcoming us. Because until the second advent, we have to remember, hell is closed. Heaven's closed as well. They're kind of queuing up outside. That's why it says in the, in the original that the, the, rich, the rich man was in Hades. Hell's waiting room. But if we jump to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 8, 11. You don't have to turn that. I'll just give you the quick note. Matthew 8, 11, what does it say? I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And it's pretty clear, brothers and sisters. Lazarus is there now. It's this incredible banquet table. All the saints that went before us. And remember, what is a saint? It's not how the, the Roman Catholic Church defines a saint as a follower of Christ. Now let's go on to verse, the next verse. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23. And in Hades, 
being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue for I am in anguish and this flame. You guys notice something interesting? First of all, he didn't repent. God forbid any of us find ourselves here in Hades, in this torment, in the next life. But don't you think if we could see Father Abraham and Lazarus and everyone at the table, the first thing we would do is repent. But no, the rich man's heart's so cold, so hard, so much stuck in the hierarchy of earth. Lazarus is so below him, he won't even talk to Lazarus. We see a lot in Guatemala when we see the people who, who a, lot of the, a lot of times you'll see the indigenous that are in the home. They live taking care of the home, cleaning the home, cooking. They have their own quarters, their own little table. They're in the home with the family, but they're in different worlds. And then we can see also the, the, the beauty of Abraham. Again, showing the Christian heart. In what way? Abraham's response, child! Remember that in your lifetime, you received the good things. And Lazarus, like manner, received the bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. Notice, what did Abraham call the rich man? Child. Child. Here's the key. And beside this, verse 26, beside all this, between us... And you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. What do our, what do our hearts and minds believe the story says? Right away, oh, the man's there. He's in anguish. He can see heaven above. He can see Abraham. He can see the saints. He's burning. I think he'd repent, but he doesn't repent. But we would think he would be the one to leave. He would be the one looking to escape. He'd be the one fighting to get out. But no, this should reset all of our theological compasses, brothers and sisters. What does this mean? It means that if Lazarus could, if Lazarus could bring water, even just a drop on his finger, to ease the torments of his tormentor, he would. I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but it, it gives me goosebumps in one arm that are positive and optimistic. And wow, this is incredible. And goosebumps on the other arm to convict me. How hard are our hearts, brothers and sisters? The Lord in his providence, knowing the, the, the character of hearts that will be sitting there at Father Abraham's banquet table, the character of every single heart inside every single person is the character that if they could they would bring the water to their tormentor just the news this morning I saw somebody on a Delta Airlines flight yesterday going to California uh, got upset because someone put something in the back pocket of his airline seat and they had a full out brawl right there in the middle of the seats fist, blood that but I bet if you were to ask this man who's in jail now hey you Christian yeah I guess so 
The critical reader will also notice something else. All throughout this story, what does Lazarus say? All throughout the story, what does Lazarus say? Nothing. There he is after a life of, of, of torment, looking at his tormentor in Hades. They can see each other. A part of me thinks Lazarus would be there and, and he'd have some kind of, uh, I can't dance, I'm not going to dance for you, but some kind of happy dance. Maybe prancing all around the table. Look, I'm healthy. My sores are gone. I'm here. Oh, look where you are. I, I, I laughing and teasing the rich man. No. Lazarus says nothing. And so often, dear family, the most powerful things that we can do in life is to say nothing. That silence is not empty. Christ! Pilate begged Christ, basically, hey, defend yourself. I have the power to kill you. I have the power to crucify you. Defend yourself. But like the suffering servant in Isaiah's gospel. Well, Isaiah, one of my theology, my theology teachers in seminary, Dr. Warren Gage, he used to always call Isaiah the fifth gospel. And I like that. I, I believe in that. So, in this gospel, Isaiah, what does Christ do? He's the suffering servant. He says nothing. Bruce Reed, he wanted to hurt. Lazarus says nothing, brothers and sisters, at seeing the torment of his tormentor. Okay, we're almost finished. Just think, brothers and sisters, how we live today. Our pettiness. Eye for an eye. Tease those around us that look different than us, that vote different than us, that believe different things. But don't we think we should act? We should reorientate our compass, our theological compass, to be like Lazarus? Furthermore, what does Christ Jesus tell us? <clears throat> Christ Jesus, in Matthew 5:44, Christ tells us, Love those who hate us. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. At night, during your devotion, or in the morning, during your devotion, how many of us are praying for those we don't like? How many of us are praying for those that hate us? Maybe they hate us with reason. But how many times do their names, do their faces enter our prayer life? Brothers and sisters, we have to raise our standard. We have to stop letting the world dictate to us what a Christian should be, what a Christian worldview is. We have to raise our standard. We have to raise our bar because, remember, brothers and sisters, we are called to something. We are called to be someone. What is that? Faithful. We're not called to be successful. We're not called to be healthy. We're not called to be popular. We're not called to be any of the things that the world holds valuable, that worldly people cherish. 
We are simply called to be faithful, and that's more than enough. And to be faithful means we radically change how we treat others. Look at the dignity. The rich man never gave, never saw Lazarus with any dignity. Look at the dignity, the incredible dignity Lazarus affords the, his tormentor. He says nothing. He doesn't say, ah, oh, Father Abraham, do X, Y, and Z to him. We should all feel convicted of this. A Christian is a follower of Christ. We're called to be faithful. We're called to pick up our cross. We're called to walk a narrow path, a difficult path, a hard path. Well, one of the quintessential parts, one of the main aspects of that is we're demanded to love others. We're demanded, we're commanded to love those who hate us or persecute us or who torment us. We have to see each one of us is the Imago Dei, is an image bearer of God. Like it says in uh, James, how, how can fresh water and salt water come out of the same spring? How can the same tongue we use to bless God curse our brother? We have to raise our standards the best form of us to evangelize today with these youth who are so connected in the world, these youth who see everything, who hear everything, so often it's for us to be quiet, to remain in silence, and to show the dignity that is inherent in every person. So let me finish with this. In the readjustment this morning of our theological compasses, we may remember we're called to be faithful. We're called to humbly, thankfully love Christ Jesus with all our power and might. This last step in the, in the Protestant Reformation needs to be extre is extremely personal. Like I said before, we started, it was an exterior movement in one aspect. The church. But what was the trajectory? What was the aim of this? To get the scriptures in our hand so no one is, without, no one is with excuse. And with the scripture in our hand, we are to encounter God, encounter his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit in scripture. Encounter the map, the path, this narrow path, and what it looks like to follow Christ. The Reformation's half completed. Like the dinner that's there on the counter with the best ingredients and my favorite food. But no one's put it in the oven. This movement began, brothers and sisters, and we have to carry it forward. We have to carry it through. And it's personal. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you, your children. Uh, and again, it goes back to dignity. Before there's love, there's dignity. And I'm a little over, but one interesting aspect that we mentioned before, uh, the Jews, the Jewish people were, well, all of the ancient world, obsessed with numerology and astrology, astronomy, there really wasn't a difference. And uh, all these numbers are very significant in scripture. 
Remember, how many brothers does the rich man have? He says, five. Father Lazarus. I mean, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. Watch this. There's five. Let's add the rich man. Six. Had they brought Lazarus into the family? Had they treated Lazarus with dignity? That's seven. The number of completion. The number of blessing. The number of God. It's not hard, brothers and sisters. Your family, we have. We have the map in front of us. All we have to do is read. All we have to do is say, I want to be like Lazarus. I want to remain silent in front of those who persecute me and torment me. Even if I'm right, I'm to love those who hate me. And given the chance, I am to wet my finger and bring to them. Brothers and sisters, we have to adjust our compasses. We have to take back what is ours. We have to make another claim saying, this is who Jesus Christ is, this is what a Christian looks like, and this is how a Christian lives. Amen.